Before I uh, dive into Exodus here, I, I just wanted to share something I thought was really cool this week. Uh, last week, actually, I got a message from Trey Demps, who's over in Belgium, and he was just wanting me to know that he had been listening to this series on Exodus online, and uh, just how much that had been an encouragement to him, how much that you know he just really appreciated that he could connect with us here at the church, and and uh, so I was like, wow, that's cool. In fact, I told him, you might be the first person I know who's streaming the sermons in Europe, so you know, you've know, you made us intercontinental. This is cool, right? The ministry of the church. And then this week, uh, I got a message from Janessa Fisk, who's in Slovenia, and she too has been listening to the Exodus sermons online and wanted to thank me for, again, just the encouraging and challenging messages from the Word of God, and uh, and I thought, Man, in just a span of a week, we've gone from, from like Eastern Europe across to Western Europe. We're covering the, the whole continent now. And, uh, I was really encouraged by that because I thought, you know, um, this church has never been a big church, but we have a big footprint. You know? I mean, just the way God brings people in and sends people out. We see that happening all the time, all the time, all the time. And for those of us who stay, sometimes it can be a little discouraging. We always feel like we're always, the doors are revolving here. But, but the, the Lord has used this place, uh, just to have a big footprint across the world. I, I often tell people who ask me, what's it like to pastor a small urban church? And I say, you know, if, if, if all the people who have, who have called this place home over the last five years had stayed in the city, we'd be a mega church by now. And I think that's true. Uh, and I praise God for the fact. It's good for the kingdom uh, to use even small churches to make a, a just a, a mark in the world for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm thankful for that. I thought that was cool. I like hearing about that folks that have been here are still connected to the family we've got here at Edgewater and, and the gospel is continuing to spread. So anyway, I thought I'd share that with you. But back to Exodus, we are in Exodus, and uh, let's uh, let's kind of uh, remember where we're at. So the last couple of Sundays here, as we've studied Exodus, have been kind of heavy, right? We've, we've been talking about the tabernacle. As Moses is up on the mountain, God has given him instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, and it's been a lot of blueprints, right? It's been a lot of kind of wading through all of that, and it was worth doing because of the tremendous symbolism involved in the design of the tabernacle, seeing what God was trying to do there. And if it just to, just to remind you, much of the picture of the tabernacle and the not just the design of the structure, but the furnishings within the structure were there to point us back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, there were there were pointers there that reminded that God is with his people and 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 that he was cre- recreating if you will his people through Israel now they were a new people a new creation hearkening back to his presence with Adam and Eve in the garden and then and then pointers forward uh, that were pointing them to the ultimate day when God will send his son and, and his son will come and restore all things unto himself and we will be again in the presence, ultimately, in the presence of God. All of that uh, symbolism in the tabernacle, it's been, uh, it's been really important uh, to go through that, and I think really encouraging to go through that. Uh, and when we get back to Exodus, we're going to take a, a couple of weeks off over Christmas and New Year's, but when we get back into Exodus uh, after the New Year's, we're going to see then the implementation of all that building design uh, throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. But then we have today, and, and what happens today in between the, the, the layout of the, of the tabernacle and the implementation of that, we get this interruption in the text. 
And it's not a, it's not a good interruption. It's, it's a, it's a terrible interruption. We, we've been looking at Moses on the top of the mountain meeting with God. What we haven't seen in a few chapters is what are the people doing? And so as we get into Exodus chapter 32 and, and the next couple chapters, we, we're going to see what's happening at the base of the mountain. They've been without Moses' leadership and presence for 40 days. Because again, he's been up with the Lord for that period of time. So for 40 days, he's up there, they're down here, and things have unraveled very quickly. Let's take a look at the text. Exodus chapter 32, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. All right, you can look up. We'll come back to that in a bit. But as you read that, thought that, that, that I had as I'm reading through that is this is a really frustrating passage to read. Isn't it? it it's, it's frustrating. You just, you're just like, duh, what are they doing, right? After all that they've been through, and what, how much time have we spent now in the book of Exodus looking at all that God has been doing with His people? They were delivered from Egypt through the Passover, through the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the receipt of the Ten Commandments. God has given them His, His law, His presence. He's made Himself manifest on the mountain in front of them. They have the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. We're told that's the Holy Spirit present with them. All the things that God has done. And then their response to Him, their declaration that they will do Whatever the Lord commands. We've seen all of that so far in the book of Exodus. You'd think that after all that, they would have a much more steady and patient faith in God by now. Right? Do you ever read through some of these accounts from the, from the Old Testament where, where God's presence is made so clearly manifest in front of people and think, man, if, oh, if, if I saw that, Right? If I could have that experience, man, I would never doubt God. 
So you read them and you're like, you guys, you saw that. And, he, and it just it frustrates you to see them do this thing here, which frankly is a really stupid thing. And it reminds us of the shock and the disappointment of Genesis chapter 3, right? You get that same feeling. You you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God has made Adam and Eve and He's put them in the midst of the garden and He's walking with them in the cool of the day and they've got the tree of life and everything is laid out in front of them. You can eat from all these trees. Everything is good and pleasing. And you think, man, I wish I had that. Genesis 3 comes along and Satan tempts them to say, did God really say? And, and they so quickly disobey. They so quickly leave God's commands aside and go after the lie and you just think, ugh! And, and, and you're doing it again here. And, and that, I think, is the idea. Because we've seen so much of the recreation of the Garden of Eden in this scene with the tabernacle design over the last couple of chapters. And so I think we're, we're supposed to get that same idea. It's like we're back in the garden for all the good stuff and this. You get this picture of, 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 of a recreated Israel in Eden and then another fall. Just like Adam and Eve. And so we're reminded, you know, these, this might be a new people, a recreated people, if you will, and yet tragically, the old humanity still lurks in the hearts of humanity. I said this before, I didn't make this up, you've heard something like this, but again, you can, you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to take Egypt out of the people, right? And so we get this stark reminder of their sinfulness, of their humanity, of the old man deep inside where God is trying to create the new people. So let's talk about this particular scene. Um, what's with the calf? Right? Okay, we get, we, we get in our minds, okay, this is sort of like Genesis 3. This is the fall all over again. But what a weird way to do it. Let's take all of our earrings and melt them down and let's make a cow. What's with the calf? Well, the word translated as calf could also mean bull. Uh, so it, it, maybe it was a young bull, if you will, but, but it's, it, that's the idea here. They've got this, this bull and the bull as an object of worship was actually familiar and common where they came from in Egypt. A bull represented strength. It represented fertility. If you're going to worship something, you might as well worship something that seems like it's strong and fertile, right? And so they're, they're, they've created this, this picture of strength and fertility. And, and frankly, the idea of a bull, you think that that's, that seems a little archaic, but it, it still represents that today, right? What do you say when the stock market is booming? We call it a bull market, right? So we still have that same idea of strength and fertility. So you get this idea that, that what they're doing here is they're, they're, they're mingling, they're mingling or, or co-mingling, uh, their idea of, of worship with God with the worship of the surrounding nations, with the worship of the world around them. And what have they done? We, we, they, they, they've, they've gotten the Ten Commandments very recently, but what have they done here? They've just broken the first commandment. Shall have no other gods before me. They've broken the second commandment. 
You shall not make an image of me or any other God, right? And, and perhaps even the third commandment, breaking the Sabbath, this is not the right kind of worship. So we've, we've got at least two, if not three of the commandments broken right here in this moment. What's happening here? This is, it's idolatry, right? It's idolatry. At worst, they've replaced God. At best, even if they're sort of trying to commingle this with their understanding of God, they've, they've made an image of Him and they've reduced Him to a manageable level, which was the whole reason why making an image of God was forbidden. We can't reduce God to something manageable. They've tried to do this. So again, they're letting the world dictate their view of God and their worship of Him. If you look over to verse 21 here in the chapter, you'll see that Moses calls this a great sin. And here, even what I just read in verse 10, God says it's worthy of His white-hot wrath. So this is serious. It's serious what they've done. Now, there's some important application here for us, and we need to examine it. And we need to examine not just what's going on with them, but as we always come to the Word of God, we, we need to examine our own hearts, right? How do we, how do we see ourselves in the story here? And, and we've got to do that here. You might say, well, listen, I don't struggle with cow statues. I don't, I don't do that. Um, I'm going to tell you something. You actually do. You actually do because most of us, all of us, have sacred cows of the heart. Okay? So, so, so get that cow image, you know, that tangible cow image out of your mind for a minute and think about the sacred cows that everybody tends to run after, including you, and, and, and why we do it. We do it for the same reasons. Our sacred cows of the heart are run after for the same reasons that they're running after this, this tangible cow. So let's talk about those reasons. I said it's idolatry. We talk about idolatry frequently here. Uh, that's, that's a huge part of, of our heart problem, why we need a Savior. Let's talk about idolatry again. What is it? Idolatry is putting something or someone in the place of God. doesn't matter what it is. Someone or something in the place of God. And, and another way you could say that, if you seek to gain from someone or something what only Christ can give you, Things like your security, your significance and meaning, peace, deliverance. If you seek to gain from anything or anyone what only Jesus can give you, you've created a counterfeit God. And some of the most common idols in our day include sex, money, relationships, accomplishments, uh, Physical appearance, the, the pursuit of beauty, acceptance. I mean, I, I could go on and on and on and on for hours coming up with different things, but I think you get the idea here. Anything that I'm looking to gain my sense of worth and security from, when it only can come from Jesus, is a counterfeit God. And, and lots of counterfeit gods are, are, are things that are, we call bad things. Things that we'd seek after that are bad things. But listen, most of them are good things. Everything I just read, sex, relationships, money, those are good things. But when you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing, 
You've got an idol, and it's sinful. So that's what an idol is. Let's, let's cut to the, the, the heart a little bit here. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why would Israel do this? Look back at verse 1, because I think there's a tremendous motive here in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Moses was taking so long, right? He delayed to come down from the mountain. And they say to Aaron, make, let's make gods who shall go before us. In other words, Moses isn't showing up. Let's make somebody else. Let's make something else. And then they, then they, they say this thing, this, this fellow Moses, like they don't know him all of a sudden. Oh, this character Moses. Oh, the, the guy who's actually led us out, parted the Red Sea. I mean, like, it's silly, right? They, they, they've thrown him under the bus. And, and what are they saying? They're saying Moses has abandoned us, right? Which is really to say this. God has abandoned us. That's what they really mean. They're saying, where's Moses? But what they really mean is, where's God? It's been 40 days since they've seen or heard from Him. How have they been seeing primarily and hearing from God, by the way? It's, it's been through the mediator. It's been through Moses. It's been 40 days. So here's the gist. The golden calf is constructed in order to solve a perceived crisis. And the, 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 the irony of it is, is it's a crisis that doesn't really exist. There's a perceived problem that God is absent. Was that really true? I mean, come on, we've been reading for 31 chapters here all the stuff that God is doing. Is this true? Of course it's not true, right? But think about that. Where they're at in this moment, they're thinking, where's God? And that might just explain the greatest and most frequent motivation behind your own idolatry. Right? Just evaluate your heart a little bit. Isn't that the first thing that comes out of your mouth when you're discouraged, when you're impatient? Where's God? Things aren't going so well for you. According to your timetable, according to your laid out plans, according to your ideals, God isn't responsive. God isn't meeting my need. I don't believe God will meet my need. So therefore, I'm going to satisfy my need with, and then you fill in the blank. Sex, money, relationships, blah, 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 blah. To be frank, that is stupidity. Okay, I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to all of us. When we do that, it's, it's stupid. Just like you can read it here and go, gosh, you guys are stupid. And I had the Psalm read, Jamie read Psalm 106. Um, earlier and uh, let's look at it again let me let me just show you because this this demonstrates the stupidity of all of this they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass okay that last line that eats grass is meant to show us the futility of idol worship. 
They took the glory of God and they, they exchanged it for this cow who eats grass. It's meant to be like, isn't that dumb? Idols can't deliver people. And I think if, if I was going to be really kind of blunt, and, and forgive me for saying it, but I think the psalmist is pretty blunt here. Uh, here's what he's saying. Idols just represent created things that eat, sleep, and poop like everybody else. To trust in that is stupid. Psalm 115 says something similar. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Didn't we read that here in Exodus 32? Aaron crafted with his hands this cow, right? Man-made, right? They have mouths. They don't speak. They have eyes. They don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands. They don't feel. They have feet. They don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throats. It's inanimate, people. That's what he's saying here. And those who make them become like them. So who all do trust in them? So why do we so quickly and easily run to idols in order to satisfy our longings and our desires? Why do we feel the need to get security and acceptance and pleasure from worldly things? I mean, you think about it just long enough, you think, boy, that is kind of dumb. I'm starting to feel a little stupid. Listen, the rest of Psalm 106 tells us why. It gets to the heart of the problem. Look at that second stanza there. You know why you run after idols? Because you forget God. They forgot their Savior. They forgot that the thing that they're running after and pursuing that idol to gain that sense of security and acceptance and peace is something that they already have. They have a Savior. And they forgot Him. They forgot God had done great things in Egypt. They forgot the wondrous works in the land of Ham. They forgot the awesome deeds by the Red Sea. I don't know how you forget that until I ask myself how I forget. And I go, oh yeah, I forget stuff like that all the time. We too often forget the goodness and the sufficiency of God. And when we forget, we fail to trust Him, right? When I forget that He's been faithful to me in the past, I'm less likely to put my trust in Him going forward in the present or in the future because I, I'm, I'm just, I'm tempted to believe that. Well, maybe I can't trust Him. Even though if I look back, I'd see every single time He's faithful. So if I forget, I fail to trust Him. When I, when I forget, I fail to have patience. Do you notice the contrast, by the way, in verses 1 and 8? Look at verse 1 again. The people saw that Moses delayed. So their mindset is, you know what? This is taking a long time. And then you get over to verse 8 when God says what's going on. And He says, they've turned aside quickly. The people are thinking, this has been a long time, and God's like, this has been nothing. Are you kidding me? How quick? And in the grand scheme, God's right. 40 days. 40 days? It, again, 
You've gone through the Red Sea. You've had the Passover. You've seen the faithfulness of God over and over again. 40 days is all it takes for you to throw it out the window. You want to just scream at the Israelites, how could you be so short-sighted? How can you be so tunnel-visioned? But then therein lies the problem with us, right? There, there lies the problem of our own hearts. When we get fixated on our problems, and listen, this week, you've done this. So have I. You get fixated on your problem with tunnel vision, right? In other words, it's all consuming. It's all you can see. It, 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 just, it feels like that's the only thing that your life has been defined by. Tunnel vision. And you quickly turn to idols. Because that's what we do. Forgetting the broad view of God's faithfulness to keep us and to keep His promises. God always keeps His promises. You want an awesome verse that you can memorize? I'll put it up on the screen. Joshua 21.45. This makes this abundantly clear. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every single one. All of them. Remember that. Remember that. The next time you're tempted to think that God is forgetting you, remember that. Every single promise is kept. Don't turn to a counterfeit God in order to satisfy your foolish tunnel vision. It's, it's so temporary. It's so tempting. But listen, sin is insanity. When you, when you step back and you look at it, you go, you know what? This is insanity because God never fails. And that's the problem with sin. That's exactly what it is. All sin involves a crazy, and by crazy, I mean insane, a crazy loss of perspective. And that's what's happening here to the people of Israel in chapter 32. That explains one way that, that, that we can easily turn to idols and to commit sin. We just get impatient. We feel like God is nowhere and we forget. There's other explanations in this passage as well. In fact, I'm going I'm to give you three more explanations here for, for why we run to idols and commit great sin. The first is this. We sin when we disobey God's Word. And I'll come back to these. But we sin when we disobey God's Word. Secondly, we sin when we minimize God's grace. And thirdly, we sin when we commit syncretism in worship. Alright, so let's look at that just briefly. Those three things. The first one again, we sin when we disobey God's Word. We, we addressed this from verse 1 already. Right? They, they, they broke the first and second commandments, possibly the third commandment here, that they'd just recently been given. So God has given them, this is my word. No other gods before me. Don't make an image of me. And they, they, they've thrown that out the window at this point. All right. Um, let's look over verse 15 and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. Listen to this. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Do you notice the emphasis here? 
Yeah, Moses has, has got the tablets, but God wrote it. God made it. God said it. God engraved it here. There's this strong emphasis. This is God's Word. It's God's Word. It's not Moses' Word. This isn't some arbitrary text that we're supposed to follow. This is God actually directly speaking to His people. God said this. Perhaps they'd minimize that fact. Yeah, maybe, they've, maybe they've been attributing all this to Moses instead. I mean, after all, in verse 1, they're more concerned with Moses' delay and therefore his role as their leader than, than they seem to be about God's role as their king. That's Mo- Moses told us not to do this stuff. I don't know what they're thinking. And, and, and you think about Exodus 19. Uh, they had sworn, remember, to do all that the Lord had commanded and yet now they've shaken it all off. Like, yeah, there's nothing serious. <laughs> they minimize the Word of God. And here's, the, here's the, just a simple principle here. Minimizing God's Word leads directly to idolatry. We see this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They minimized the Word of God. They threw it out the window. And what does God do? He therefore gives us up in the lust of our hearts to impurity and finally to worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. That's idolatry. When we avoid God's Word, our own peril is unavoidable. That's the first thing. The second thing is minimizing God's grace. This is interesting. Remember where the gold came from? Look at look back at verse two. All right, they're, they're they're told to take the earrings out and to take all that gold and to use that for the calf. Where did that gold come from? You say, well, it came from their ears. Well, no, before that, right? Before that, Exodus chapter twelve. I, I'm putting it up on the screen. Is it up there? All right, just just look at that while I talk for a second. Who gave the gold to them? God did, right? God did. It it was a sign to them of God's victory. It, it was a picture for them of God's grace and His faithfulness. When the battle is won, to the victor go the spoils, right? And God fights the battle for them. He wins the battle for them. He provides the spoil. And it, it's given to them. Like, Look, this is a tangible reminder and evidence to you. I, I did this. It's grace. You didn't do this. You didn't deserve this. You didn't earn this. I'm giving it to you. And yet here, Israel minimizes God's grace. God gives them something and they now give it over to another. Thanks, God. We're going to go worship somebody else with this. They shunned His glory for the glory of something else. And when we do that, we fall into terrible sin. And we fall into terrible disaster. They forgot who saved them. We, we must be careful to never forget. Never, never stop thanking God. Never stop thanking for His grace and, and, and living for His glory. God has given you so many gifts, Christian. Chief among those, of course, is your salvation, right? 
What, what greater gift? That's worth more than gold. And yet we, we can say, yeah, but every good gift is from above, including your money and your career and your skills and your relationships, your sexual intimacy, all those things I read earlier. They're good gifts from God. Right? How appalling to take a gift from God and use it to give glory to a counterfeit. How appalling to, to take a gift from God and to use it to, to seek a false God's help in securing what God has already freely given you. They minimize the grace of God. And then the last thing I said was syncretism in worship. We, we sin, we commit idolatry when we, we do, we have syncretism in our worship. And by syncretism, I mean commingling true worship with worldly worship. Yeah, sort of blending in this, this is what biblical worship looks like. This is what God has said with, this is sort of the stuff that the influence of the world around. We're just going to kind of mix it all up and kind of create something that, you know, balances it all out. That's what I mean by syncretism. We, we sin against God when we do what's popular instead of doing what's right in the eyes of God. Look at verses four through six again. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And listen to what the people said. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Gods is a little g, right? It's plural in your, in your English text. So in their thinking, they've created something that is a replacement of God. These are your gods, O Israel. This cow is what led us through and brought us out of Egypt. Right? Their minds are totally in the replacement mode. But what does Aaron do? Aaron sees this. He builds an altar before it, and then he makes a proclamation that says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. What have we said about that? What is that, what is that word in Hebrew? Yahweh, right? So here's the people are plural, little g gods. We're thinking about something else, and Aaron's like, yeah, let's do a feast to Yahweh. He's trying to get like, let's turn the corner a little bit. There's a mixing here, right? He tried to redirect their blatant idolatry to a form of worship of God, but that was a massive failure of leadership and a terrible affront to God's holiness. Aaron blew it here. He's a bad pastor this day, right? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but I think it should be said that we can do lots of things in the name of the Lord, right? In the name of the Lord, but still not worship Him properly. The calf was what the people wanted. It was an attempt for the people to relate to God on their own terms. It, it sort of represented this picking and choosing, if you will, of, of, of what parts of worship, what parts of obedience to God's Word are convenient and desirable. Listen, I know that that's a, that's a huge battle for, for people today still. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for all of us. Our, our hearts are, are so often wanting to, to sort of begin manage God and make Him into something more comfortable, more palatable, right? I, I, I want a loving God, not a holy God. I, I, want, I want a merciful God, not a judge. And yet God's both, right? 
Or, or we try to, to make our worship more palatable and in line with the culture around us. You know, we want to make sure that we're not offending them or whatever. In the name of the Lord. But that's syncretism, and that kind of syncretism is a sin that leads us far from God. And, and it also makes us lose our distinctiveness as his people. It's a damaging and it's a damning foolishness. And the destructive result of idolatry is plainly seen here, right? They've disobeyed his word. They've minimized his grace. They've, they've syncretized worship with the world. They've commingled. What, what happens? The first thing to notice is another echo of the fall in Genesis chapter three. Just like Adam, Aaron goes into this pathetic mode of blame shifting. Look at verse 20. Sorry, I got to turn the page. Verse 20. All right, so he took the calf that they had made and they burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, made the people drink of it. And Aaron, excuse me, Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So, so I said, Let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I, lo- I love that. The absurdity of that response. It, again, does it remind you of Adam? Right? God, God's walking in the garden. Adam has fallen and he, he says, you know, what's going on? That woman you made. Right? It's her fault. It's your fault. I just threw it in and boom, a cow. I, uh, uh. The absurdity of that response is a, is, is meant to be a reminder to us of the absurdity of sin. Right? Those of you who are parents, when your kids are little, you know, they, 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 they're, they're still trying to figure out how to concoct that little lie to get out of trouble, and it's like the worst lie you've ever heard, right? And you're just thinking, oh man, this is absurd, right? You want to laugh at them. It's that same idea. It's absurd. Aaron has not only done that and been sort of exposed as absurd in his sin, but, but now what has he done? Now he's actually broken another commandment. Right now he's broken the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Look what they did. They did all this. He lies. And then the people's response shows us the gross and destructive immorality of sin. If you look back at verse 6, we read this earlier, but, but it says that the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now, that's kind of sanitized in the ESV, but in the original Hebrew, that idea that they rose up to play makes it sound quite sexual. And I think it would be appropriate to say that they were eating and drinking, and frankly, they're having an orgy. That's gross immorality. What's going on? Well, idolatry is what's going on. And, and Romans 1 makes the link between idolatry and immorality, doesn't it? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There's, there's this idea, this, this great link of sexual sin wrapped up in idolatry. Idolatry leads to gross immorality. Why is that? Remember that, that, that passage we read earlier? Those who worship them become just like them. If you worship an idol, you become like an idol. Here's the problem with an idol. Idols have no morality. Right? So idolatry has no morality. The sin of idolatry leads to moral breakdown. And now they've broken another commandment. They've now broken the seventh commandment. She'll not commit adultery. That's what they're doing. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden, when I read verse 10 earlier, you probably thought it was a little harsh, but now the response of God in verse 10 is starting to feel a little bit more justifiable, isn't it? I've seen these people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you, Moses. What, what should a holy God do in the midst of this kind of gross sin? Well, that leaves us with the now, now what? That sounds like the final chapter there, right? It's over. So now what? Well, if you've been around here long enough, you've, you know, we've seen time and time again in Exodus that the people, here's the now what, they need a mediator. They need a mediator. And, and it's almost becoming like a formula for our sermons, right? About this time, right, right about, uh, you know, 10 to noon on a Sunday morning, you come here over the last few weeks and here's what you're going to hear out of my mouth. They need a mediator. It's almost becoming like a broken record. And, and yet, <laughs> that's, that's intentional, I think, on God's part here. Um, why? Because that's the nature of the gospel. Right? Sinful people like us need the gospel over and over and over. We need the gospel daily. Not, not to receive salvation again and again, but to be reminded again that we have been saved. They forgot their God. They forgot their Savior. We, we need to hear the gospel and be reminded that, that we need to hear it every day. We need to repent and believe it because we forget and we forget and we forget. That's why I could say with fairly high level of confidence when I was talking about idolatry that this week you did that. Because I did it. Because we forget, don't we? We forget. So here we go. Moses needs to step in as the mediator and his mediation for the people of Israel is meant to point us to our ultimate mediator in Jesus Christ. Just look at the, look at the, the, the ministry of Moses on behalf of God's people and, and, and see the picture of Jesus for us. Look at, look at verses 11 through 14. 
Oh, I'm, I'm almost done. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up quickly here. But look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people with whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Lord, remember your covenant? Remember your promises? And look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I love this because two things. First of all, it, it, it reveals to us the nature and need for God-honoring intercessory prayer. If you ever want to really focus in on how, how should I be praying, this is a good passage to look at. Moses gives you some great examples here of God-honoring intercessory prayer. Notice what he does. Three things. He, he appeals to God's power. He appeals to God's past faithfulness and reputation. And he appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. It was interesting earlier in the text, when God's kind of telling Moses what's happening down the mountain, he says, you know, your people are doing this. And here Moses is like, no, God, these are your people. This is your power that's delivered. It's your faithfulness. This is your reputation on the line. This is your promise. And I think verse 14 is provocative, isn't it? It makes, it makes it sound as if Moses got God to change his mind. Okay, God will relent. Wow! God was just about to kill him if it wasn't for Moses. That's what it sounds like, right? But I don't think that's what verse 14 means. And I say that because God is sovereign and doesn't change. God had made these promises, right? But I think what we see here is something fascinating. We see God making a rhetorical demand and inviting Moses to intercede on the people's behalf with what is true. Listen, mediator, unless you do something, they're going to die. God's setting Moses up to act like the necessary mediator. And look at what Moses does. Verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. That's weird. What's going on here? Well, listen, first of all, the breaking of the tablets is not a sinful act of anger, I don't think. You know, you've seen the movie, right? Oh, Moses is mad. Well, he's mad, but I don't think he's sinfully mad. I think he's righteously angry. This is a demonstrative sign that this covenant is broken. I don't think it was an accident. Like, oh, they slipped, right? It was like, no, this is broken. You People, you broke the covenant. That's communicating something to them. And then, and then the grinding of the gold and the mixing it in the water, pouring on the water and making the people drink it. Why? What's that all about? Honestly, I don't know. 
And most commentators have kind of, you know, they come up with theories and, and nobody knows exactly, but, but, but maybe this is it. He was forcing them to digest that gold, to drink it, to digest it. What happens when you digest something? It comes out as waste and it's, it's ruined, right? It's unusable and it can't be used again for false worship like this. And I think that's probably the point. In other words, the sin needs to be put away for good. Verse 25. And then Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. Here we see the pointer to the grace of substitutionary atonement. And we see a pointer to the consequence for sin. Verses 30 and 32 are key. Moses says to the people, perhaps I can make atonement for you. And then he goes before the Lord and he says, God, blot me out instead of them. If you're going you're gonna to do something, God, you're going to wipe out your people. Take my life instead of theirs. Moses offered to give his life for the sake of God's people. And he understood here, I think, the nature of sin. When the people sin, they need a substitute. He's grasping the the picture of the Gospel here. But there's one problem. There's one problem. We we, we saw with the Passover and with the priest that that sin could be forgiven with a representative or through a representative by sacrifices. And we see this new appeal here. I mean, here, here's Moses, the, the representative who's saying, I'll offer myself as the sacrifice. That's a beautiful thing, but there's a problem with the offer. The sacrifice God demanded needed to be without blemish, right? That's what he's been saying. You've you got to present this lamb, this goat, without blemish, spotless. It had to be perfect, and Moses isn't perfect. He's not without sin either. And so God is merciful here. We see God relents here, but but there's still a consequence for sin, isn't there? There's still a wage for sin 
that must be paid, and that wage is death. And we see the execution of that penalty in the death of 3,000 men that day. And we see the execution of that penalty, the wage of sin, in that there's a plague that is brought upon the people as a result of this sin. Right? But the pointer here couldn't be clearer. The passage causes us to look to the ultimate mediator in Jesus. The perfect Son without blemish. The, the one who can say, I'll give myself for the people. Blot me out instead of them. And it's acceptable to God because He is, in fact, without blemish and able to be the atoning substitute we need. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Listen, when we examine this text this morning, there, there, there's, there's two kinds of people in this room and you need to have a serious examining of your own heart. If, if, you're, if you do not call yourself a Christian, if you're, you're, you haven't trusted Christ, I, I don't think I needed to convince you this morning, I shouldn't have to convince you this morning, that you're an idolater. We're all idolaters. I mean, if, 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 if we can plainly say, look, anything that you would look to in this world to find your security and your peace and your comfort and your whatever, if there's anything that you're looking to, and we all have those things, right? Every one of us has placed our hope in something, some ambition, some possession, some achievement in order to arrive, to get there, to be secure. I shouldn't have to convince you of that, but, but I hope what I have convinced you of this morning through the Word of God, what He's convinced you of is that's false worship. You're trusting in something or someone that can't deliver because it's a created thing that eats, sleeps, and poops just like you. And so if that's you this morning, look to the mediator. You, you, you stand rightly condemned before a holy God who has every right to say, you know what? You're stiff-necked and I'm, I, I should blot you out. You've taken my glory and you've diminished it and you've given it to somebody else. He's, he's right and just to say, I will blot your name out of the book. But there's a mediator in Jesus who came to this earth. That's what Christmas is about. God with us. He came incarnate to say, I will live the perfect life that they can't live and I will go and I will give myself as the substitute that they need. I'm the spotless lamb. I'm the only possible mediator and he willingly gave his life up at the cross. He died the death you deserve so that your sin could be forgiven. Because the just wrath of God was executed. It just wasn't executed on you. That's what makes him good. And so this morning, if, if you're not a Christian, I want to say to you this morning, look to Christ. And listen, if you are a Christian this morning, we need to remember, don't we? Because even sometimes, even sometimes for those of us, many times for those of us who, who have looked to Christ, we forget and we forget and we forget and we look to other things and we syncretism sort of sneaks in and we get tempted to think that, you know, God, where's God right now? I haven't seen him for a few days. I haven't heard from him directly. And, and, and we forget God never, ever, ever doesn't keep his promises. 
And he's already saved us. So don't forget. Trust him. Trust him. He's worthy. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. Lord, perhaps this morning we need, to, we need to reckon with the reality that you take sin very seriously, that idolatry is a very serious offense against your sovereign holiness, your position as the supreme creator, the maker and the sustainer of all things, the, the savior of your people. I mean, Lord, you are, you are good and holy and you are significantly supreme. And we need to be reminded, Lord, that, that, that an affront to that supremacy and holiness is a terribly serious thing and lord may we may we look at the consequences here in in exodus chapter 32 and and take seriously the call to worship you as you're worthy but then father help us to fall back on your mercy knowing that we will fail at this and we will fail again but lord help us to fall back on your mercy and to strengthen our faith lord to keep believing and trusting that jesus came for sinners like us that He's a perfect mediator, and that we have no reason to ever run back to those idols again because, Lord, You're better. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in that. Help us to celebrate Christmas with thankfulness because Your grace has come. And I thank You, Lord, that You speak to us through Your Word. May Your Spirit continue to apply this to us as we go out. May we be able to see the ways in which we commit idolatry this week and confess them, repent, and believe in the ultimate mediator, the better sacrifice, Jesus. We pray these things in His name. Amen.